Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Any investor, anyone that does fundraising really well, any professional, all of them will tell you where the real success lies is in the risk. If you're playing it safe, you are not making it to the top. Welcome back to episode 36 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Deetra Giles. I was introduced to Deetra by our amazing season one guest, Sherry Riley, and oh boy, is Deetra a gift to this podcast and the world. She is an international consultant, best-selling author, and highly sought-after keynote speaker. Dietra is also the founder of ExecuPrep, a global brand that provides coaching, leadership, development, and performance improvement in the workplace. And today, we're focused on one of her key topics, confidence. Deetra shares some insight around what it takes to recover and build confidence. She talks about it in terms of getting our two-year-old confidence back. I love it. We talk about when it's actually important to embrace ignorance, and maybe it's always not such a bad word. There are times that we actually need to accept our ignorance in order to move forward. And of course, we also talk about imposter syndrome and how to handle rejection because those are two of the biggest things that get in the way of our confidence. Being a philanthropist herself, Dietra is able to talk a lot about fundraiser confidence specifically and what donors on the other side of that conversation are looking for. I cannot wait for you to meet Dietra, so let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I am thrilled to be here with Deetra Giles. We are going to have a really exciting conversation about leadership and confidence. And I really just want to start it off, Deetra, with you having the opportunity to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your work and kind of what brings you to this moment in time. Absolutely. So again, thank you for getting it right, Valerie. I am Deidre Giles, the CEO of ExecuPrep, and I run an international performance optimization firm. And so I literally get to go around the world working with companies to make sure their people are performing at their optimal level. And that's from the for-profit space to the nonprofit space to government to academia, literally all around the world. And the funny thing is I get to do this stuff in my own home because I'm also a wife and a mom of two. One of my children, my daughter's getting ready to go to college and I'm now teaching her how to navigate this world and this space as she goes into college and then very soon after into her own professional career. So I'm like, it's really real for me right now. This is not just someone else's company. This is my child who I want to get off of my own payroll. So... (laughs) It's real for me right now. (laughs) I 
love that. I love that. And I love that you included that in just sharing your sort of initial story. How did you find yourself doing the work that you're doing now? You know what? It's really weird because I'm in the performance optimization space or the HR space as it started. And listen, let's be honest. No one as a kid, when you go to them and they're like six or seven years old, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, I want to be the head of HR. Like no one in the history of ever has said that. So it really was an accident. I went to college thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon. And then I found this place on campus that I akin to probably either the fifth, sixth or seventh layer of hell in Dante's Inferno. And it was called the Science Center. And I recognized that I was not supposed to be there. So thusly, I was not meant to be a neurosurgeon, but I was still meant to fix things. I was meant to fix the head. And I realized it wasn't the literal brain. It was the consciousness of organizations. How do we operate and how do we deal with our people? And that's how I ended up in HR. And I fell in love with it and have stayed there ever since. I love that. And I love that you used the word consciousness because I think about that a lot. What does it take to raise the consciousness of our sector around certain issues? And I am not used to hearing that word that often being said, at least in the nonprofit sector. So I appreciate uh, you leading with that. And I was mentioning to you before we hit record that one of the things that I love about your work is the way that you talk about confidence in particular. And right on your website, when you're talking about confidence, you talk about confidence being something that we once had and then was taken away in some way. So talk to me a little bit about that, about your view of confidence and why we struggle with it. So here's the thing for me about confidence. People act as if confidence is just this thing you have and either you have it or you don't. And we don't realize that confidence is really a spectrum that waxes and wanes. And we're all born with it. You know, as a parent, we run around behind our children because we think they're going to kill themselves. It's like you do realize that the top of that shelf was not meant for you to jump off of you do realize that you actually don't know how to ride a bike. I remember my son, he was about two years old. We were in PetSmart and I turned my head away for just two seconds. And then I hear my daughter, who's the oldest, screaming. She's like, get him, get him, get him. And I'm like, get him from where? I turn around and he is at the mouth of this black and white Great Dane who is almost my height. I mean, like the Great Dane is looking down at my son and he is reaching up to the dog's mouth saying, moo, cow. That level of confidence we're born with. And throughout life, we're told, no, don't do that. That's wrong. That's right. You fail. Don't try. And it starts to slowly and slowly and slowly slip away. And every now and then we get a glimpse of it. We do something great and we get highlighted and we get a glimpse. And then that very next moment, we're reminded of a failure. And what we have to do is keep those glimpses of brightness and confidence and success in the front of our mind. So when we have those little eclipses, the eclipse doesn't black out the sun. It just takes away the shine just a little bit, but we see the brightness shining behind it. The problem is we don't keep our I am great and I was successful file handy. So when we have those little failures, we're not so quick to dig into that file and say, you know what? (laughs) I killed it on that one. This one was a failure, but I am still a beast. Right. And so we have to keep those things as reminders of, you know what? 
I am kind of awesome. I love that. And I have a two-year-old now. And so what you were sharing is so real. And it's interesting because it has been something I think a lot about, like, how do I keep her safe without destroying her confidence about something, right? Because I'll tell her all the time, I love how brave you are. I love how courageous you are. And it's my job to keep you safe. And so, but like finding that balance and then we find ourselves, I'd be curious what you think about this. You know, now I'm thinking as you're sharing all that, okay, but now that I'm an adult and I've calibrated sort of safety, right? At least physical safety or like life safety, but in my body, sometimes intellectual things feel unsafe or risk feels unsafe. And so how do I... And how do we navigate that place to say, okay, I am actually safe. Now, this isn't where I need my own protective mama bear to pull me off the shelf or back from the street. So I am safe. And so I can show up confidently and fully to this. And then is there a time when we're actually, that's a place to mitigate risk? Like Mm -hmm. how do we find that middle ground? I think we don't recalibrate safety enough, right? We walk into situations, let's say, for example, our professional careers, we walk in completely ignorant. And one part about this recalibration of safety is the word ignorant has become this hugely negative word. No one wants to be called ignorant. And so because of that, we don't embrace ignorance. It's unsafe to be ignorant when the reality is Ignorance is the safest place to be. And so because of that, we don't recalibrate that. At this point in time, I was ignorant. I embraced it and I learned. So it's no longer unsafe for me to act this way. In this situation, I should be ignorant. It's not unsafe for me to not know. And so we don't recalibrate safety enough. And because of that, we walk this life being safe and we're not being safe. We're being quiet. We're missing our opportunities. We're being risk averse. And here's the reality. Any investor, anyone that does fundraising really well, any professional, all of them will tell you where the real success lies is in the risk. If you're playing it safe, you are not making it to the top. You're just not. And so we don't embrace our, I see ignorance as an opportunity. We don't embrace the opportunity to be ignorant and just not know. And thusly, we never recalibrate, is this safe or is this not safe? So we always walk around in this space of it's not safe when the reality is you are as safe as you could possibly be. Mm. Okay, there are two things that you're saying there that I feel like are so critical. One is this piece around expectations. Are you expecting yourself in that scenario? You got that new job to know everything already. And why are you holding that expectation, right? And so I love what you're saying about meet yourself where you're at and let yourself just sit there because that's normal. And so I think that is just so important. And then there was so much that you just said that I feel like is important for fundraisers around the, if you're not taking risks, you're not actually in the space where you're going to grow. I say to fundraisers all the time, if you've never heard no, that's a way, that's a red flag for me. Like, I don't want to hear about everybody saying yes to you. That's actually not a good sign to me at all. As a fundraiser, if you've never heard the word no, then you're asking for $5 gifts. That means you have never asked anyone for a million dollars. You have never asked anyone for $10 million. You have never asked anyone to put you in their trust. You have never asked for the right amount of things. Like, are we in your will? 
like you you've never asked those questions because if the answer is always yes you oh no Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. And you're probably getting like savor gifts from friends and family and guilt gifts, right? Of people who don't want to say no, but you're not really finding alignment. You're not finding, figuring out who are the right, my course is called Power Partners. So who are the right power partners for you? And the process of finding those partners is also finding the people who are not those partners. That's an important part of the process. What I tell people is for me, because, you know, one of the things I teach is negotiations. I'm an adjunct faculty member. So I teach negotiations and I tell my students, no is where the negotiation begins. So if we can't get to no, we can't even start to negotiate because this is how we fail. We fail because we think yes and no are our only options. And there is a chasm between yes and no that is so wide that we often don't explore. So I'm an alum of two schools. I have three degrees and they're always hitting me up. Miss Giles, we see that you run a successful consulting firm and you're working with clients like Louis Vuitton and we would like a million dollar gift. Uh, no. Well, how about, well, let's explore the how about, right? Mm. So, but if they hadn't asked me for, if they had asked me for a thousand, here, here's your thousand. Mm. Not knowing that I would have given the 10,000 gift. If they'd asked me for whatever, let's explore the how about, let's explore what comes between yes and no. So I'm so curious because something I hear from fundraisers a lot is the donor is going to be mad if I ask for too much or I'm going to insult them. And I obviously say that that's never been true. I mean, I have been fundraising for 15 years. And if anything, I hear, I'm so honored you think I have that capacity (laughs) or I'm so honored you think I'm that generous. That actually means a lot to me that you would consider that you think I'm in that group of folks who could do something like that. I'm curious as you think about that from maybe your personal perspective, but also that negotiation piece around what does thinking big and starting big allow for? And are we alienating people ever if we go too big? So the answer is yes and yes. So let's start with thinking big. Thinking big allows you to get more than you had ever even imagined, right? So if I walk in, I remember the first time I got someone to pay me $20,000 for a speaking engagement. I was like, "Mm, that's not going to happen. And I went in and said, you know what? If I don't get this speaking engagement, what have I lost? And they said, what is your speaking fee? And I said, it's $30,000. And I tried to keep a straight face. And they said, ooh, so sorry, but our budget can only handle 20. What? Are are you going to, you mean to tell me you're going to pay me $20,000 to speak for an hour? got more than I could have ever even imagined. And now I ask for that without even blinking the eye, right? But not only did it get me more than I could imagine, it set a new standard for me, right? So that was the part. When you go big, you begin to get more than you can ever imagine. And then you set a totally different standard that you weren't even aware existed. That's the first part. Now let's talk about the second part when we're talking about worrying about offending people or things like that. Don't. Because the other reality is everyone is not designed to be your partner. 
And you're trying to get no just as quickly as you're trying to get yes. Because if I get a no, I recognize, oh, I'm sorry. You and I don't go together. And the sooner we recognize that, the more both of us can move on. So if I ask you for a million dollars and you are offended, I apologize. Not that I asked you, but I apologize for not recognizing sooner that you and I weren't quite a match. Let me free you up to go where you need to go. And now you free me up to go after the other million dollar donor. The flip side of that is the person being asked. It makes me pray harder because I'm like, Lord, you need to make me as rich as they think I am. So that my answer can be yes next time. So thank you for thinking I could give you a million. I can't, but I'm working on it. Let's keep talking. I love that for so many reasons, because the other piece that you're talking about there is valuing your own time. And I think that is related to confidence too, right? Like how quick you get that no. I remember when I was starting my coaching practice, being nervous about pricing things up front. But what I was really nervous about was not having the space to downsell, right? Like I was really, that it was a confidence issue. It had nothing to do with the numbers. And so, but what would have been much healthier for a number of different reasons, right? Would have been to just be able to know really quickly. Yeah. Okay. I'm not in your budget, how you're thinking about this. No problem. Like I, good luck finding the right fit for you. And it saves me time. And the biggest thing that shifted for me is valuing my own time, right? I don't want to spend 30 minutes on a phone call if there's this underlying piece that's not a fit. And I think nonprofits often, because they work themselves to the bone and they work so much overtime and they are so underpaid, they aren't valuing their time, just like the sector isn't valuing their time. And so they waste a lot of time with funders who are not aligned with them. Absolutely. And being afraid to even ask. I remember being at a nice event for the university and they bring in the what they consider the good donors into these nice events and it's all posh and they assign you a handler. We know who they are. You're the person that's supposed to ask me for money eventually. And I finally turned to the woman that's my person and I said, sugar, because I'm in the South, everybody's sugar, honey, baby doll. Sugar, when are you going to ask me for money? And she said, well, you know, I wanted to build a relationship. I said, we, the relationship was already built. Everyone in this room who is not working, we know why we are here. Don't waste time. I mean, don't walk up to me and say, hey, give me your money like you're mugging me, but pass me a drink, get an hors d'oeuvre, some, you know, tuna tartare and some caviar, and then ask me for what we're here for. So recognizing when the relationship is already set and the time is right and ready. I'm like, you paid a lot of money for me to be here to just follow me around with their other donors you need to be hitting up. Ask me for the money already. (laughs) And you're there, right? So you've given a certain level of permission to say, I'm here. I know what's happening. I think sometimes in fundraising, there's this perception that people have been tricked to get into the room or something. And it's like, Everyone knows what's happening. The invitation <laughs> said so. It was gold gilded. Like we knew what we were for. We, and, and it said on the invitation, it said to high donors. We already know. Everybody didn't get invited. We know why we're here. We, yeah. We come to campus. We know you're trying to do that new building over there. The sports complex that y'all are trying to build. We're not done. 
<laughs> right. And so I think that's also a respect thing to say, look, you're here because we care about the same thing, right? We care about making this organization or this school, this university great. You care about that. We care about that. We want to do this together. That's why we've invited you here and we want to know what's possible. And so I love that. I love the way that you're talking about that. So let's go back to the confidence piece for a second, because my guess is that even in that moment with that person not being straight or trying to spend more time building a relationship before making an ask, there was some confidence stuff going on there and perhaps some imposter syndrome, which we see a lot, particularly with major donors in situations like that. So talk to me a little bit about the relationship between confidence and imposter syndrome and how you support folks around imposter syndrome. Absolutely. So I actually want to go back to what we talked about earlier, which is embracing that space of ignorance, right? So there are times when we need to embrace the idea that we really just don't know. And what often happens in that space, which is it drives me crazy right now because this word imposter syndrome has gotten thrown around and bastardized so much that every opportunity for not feeling adequate is called imposter syndrome. And sometimes I'm like, no, you don't have a syndrome. You actually are an imposter. When you don't embrace your opportunity to be ignorant, when you're new to a space, new to a job, new to fundraising, or even new to this particular organization and new to these donors, and you want to jump in and pretend like you already know, know you're being an imposter, right? There's a time to be ignorant and say, I don't know and learn, but there's also a time to embrace your learning. So imposter syndrome steps in when you know what you do know these donors, you do know this organization, you just don't feel confident asking this person for this money. You have imposter syndrome. How do we get rid of it? Sometimes faking it until you make it is what you have to do. We have to push past that, oh, that, that scary part or do it where it's safe. For example, with this young lady, when I finally said that, she said, oh my gosh, I was so scared to ask you for money. I said, I get it. So we're going to start this over. I'm going to walk out. I'm going to walk back in. You're going to act like we never met and we're going to start this over again. And you're going to do it like you're going to do it on the next time. So I walked out, walked back in. We did it all over. She said, hey, Miss Giles, would you like a drink? I sure would. Like a glass of champagne. Here, let's walk over here. So tell me about your kids. They're doing amazing. Well, we would love to see them at this university. Will they, do you plan for them to come? Not sure. Well, you know what? If they do come, we're going to have this new complex and we're going to only going to be able to have that complex if you donate at this level. Bravo. I'm not donating at that level. Let's try another level. Right. But now let's go through this process. So for those of you who are thinking about this, play the process over and over in your mind until you've done this conversation with yourself so many times. So you're just replacing you in the mirror with that other person. But continue to practice it until you become comfortable. We all start out uncomfortable. Embrace the discomfort, let it push you forward and keep doing it until it becomes comfortable for you. Mm. Okay. Whew. So I am so interested in your thoughts on how people can tell 
when they are no longer actually that truly ignorant imposter. And let me, I just want to give a little context to this. So I feel like everywhere in every sector right now, we're getting so much direct marketing for courses and webinars and all these things. And frankly, it's something I've been analyzing a lot in my own business because I do sell a course and I do know the impact of that course on fundraisers. But the last thing I want to do in my marketing is make people feel like they are not good without it. Even though I know the course is going to make them more confident, more efficient fundraisers, I always feel this tension between, I don't want to add to the noise that makes them feel like an imposter because I want them to stay in action. But we do see so much marketing out there that I think leads to people questioning their skills a lot. And they have lost the ability to say, I know enough because they're like, like, well, I don't know about this and I don't know about this. And so can I be a good fundraiser if I haven't learned that piece yet? And so how do we find that sweet spot? So here's what I tell people all the time. Not having a PhD does not make you an idiot. And we often live in that space, especially when it comes to knowing our jobs. We feel like if we don't know something, we don't have the highest level of education or the highest level of knowledge, then, oh my gosh, I must be a bumbling idiot there will always be something that you don't know. Don't let the I don't know bubbles make you think that you're completely oblivious. So when you recognize, hey, people are starting to come to me to answer questions or those questions I had six months ago, I have the answers to, or I'm making a lot less calls now to get information than I used to. You're coming out of the imposter. You're coming out of ignorance. Now, there will always be pieces you don't know, and there will always be another level of better that you can be. And that's when we should be investing in the courses. That's when we should be buying your course, Mallory. That's when we should get a little more education. But knowing that we can be better does not equate to I don't know at all or I'm ignorant or I'm the pits. And so we have to make that distinction. I tell people oftentimes when you're getting education, are you getting better or are you being at the baseline informed. And many times that imposter syndrome has us thinking that we'll be in baseline informed when this investment is really making us better. That is such a helpful way to think about it. And I think for fundraisers who are listening to this, really to have that level of sort of introspection and consciousness around what you know and what you don't know. But also what's coming up for me as you're saying this is I'm thinking back to that fundraiser who, by the way, is so lucky to have had you to practice that with her and give her the opportunity. I just want to say that. I was like, what a lucky fundraiser. Well, you know, coach, you know, as coaches, know. we can't we help can't it. Help it comes out. Because <laughs> she was like, we're about to do what? I was like, I'm going to donate. I'm going to make it worth your time. Trust me, this is going to make you better. But I'm a coach. It comes out. I can't help it. <laughs> but I was thinking about the relationship between, okay, so she said a number that wasn't the right number, right? She put a number out there. We were just talking a few minutes go about aim high. That's the beginning of the conversation. There's lots of gray area. And my guess is that sometimes when a fundraiser feels like they made the wrong guess, right? That actually impacts the way they feel about their confidence or their imposter syndrome. So they're like, oh, there was something I didn't know that made me guess wrong. Whereas I think what you and I are both saying is no, 
aim high. There's no, you're never going to, this is not darts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't know. Yes, sure. There's data on metrics around capacity and alignment and all those things, but it is not a math equation, right? These are humans and everyone treats and responds to situations like this really differently. And so that's why it is a conversation. And it doesn't mean anything about how good of a fundraiser you are, that the number you initially proposed isn't where you landed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what we do is a combination of research. Okay. So knowing what the person has going on. And like you said, let's, after that, we're just kind of wild guessing it like, okay, I know she does this. I know she does that. I've seen her doing this. I follow you on IG because y'all fundraisers are the best stalkers in the world. I'm like, do not hire a private investigator detective, hire a fundraiser. They will find them. If you're getting a divorce, Talk to the fundraisers. They will find his assets. They will know everything. They will know all of his trips. They can tell you everything. So I'm like, really? How do you know my daughter's top school is FAMU? <laughs> but we it's really true. want her to come here. And I'm like, how do you know she doesn't want to go here? But we heard her top school. But you know what? It doesn't matter as long as you donate. <laughs> You're right. We probably should start a side business around private investigation, uh, us fundraisers. I love that. Yeah. But I think that is such a good point and a good reflection because I think that sometimes we pull the wrong data to tell us whether we're qualified for something or not. And there's so much about major gift fundraising in particular. In some ways, it's similar to the way you talk about confidence. A lot of what I talk about inside Power Partners is I'm actually just peeling away the crap you've been taught. The like, car salesperson strategies, the tricky listening tours where we're not being transparent about why we're actually having a conversation. So much of it is the unteaching of things that are making you feel uncomfortable or not confident or all of those things. And that's a hard thing to explain. I think to folks, they're like, what are you going to teach me that's going to add some very concrete skill. And actually in this case, what you need is a skill to not have that narrative in your head. And it can be difficult because you do get that. I, it does feel like, especially on the other side to people of, okay, I'm selling you something. You're not. And that's why oftentimes I tell my clients who happen to be in fundraising, you go where your heart is aligned. While I love my universities, the people that can get money from me is Court Appointed Special Advocates, CASA, nonprofit organization. I started my career there and got to see what these youth went through and the adjudicated youth they work with and how they end up in the system and the system fails them. And sometimes, literally, there were times when I knew we as an organization, their CASA or their guardian at litem saved their lives. So I'm so aligned with that that when a person from CASA calls and says, hey, Deetra, we would like to get money from you because they're aligned and they have the same stories or a person there said, you know what, I was in the foster care system and that's why I'm here raising money. Oh, please, here's an empty check. Do what you want. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. 
It's saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I feel like nonprofit fundraisers are like these unsung heroes. Like people have no idea what it takes and what it looks like to deal with constant rejection around something that feels so personal. Right. And especially if you have been a participant or recipient of a service that then you go and fundraise for, right? The no's feel so much harder. And that actually is something I was curious about with confidence. You talked about this a little bit at the beginning when you said like, okay, so a rejection happens and it reduces your shine a little bit, but it doesn't change how you really fundamentally feel about yourself. What are some ways you think about or support your clients around overcoming rejection and maybe rejection that triggers some of those deepest self-beliefs or childhood stories? So we actually break it down. So I actually have a confidence program and it's a 10 week program where I walk people through getting their two year old confidence back. So going back to that two year old self and getting that level of confidence, that level of confidence that says, you know what, I can jump from the top of this house and I won't break a thing. Do not go jumping off top of houses because we are old. We are we are fully grown (laughs) and our bones are set. They are not cartilage anymore. Your bones will break. (laughs) And you don't heal like you used to, but getting that back and some of the exercises I take them through will be going through two things that are major. So this is free for y'all. You all aren't even signed up for the program. This is free. One exercise is writing down the moments when you know your confidence was chipped away because it's never just snatched from us. It's like water carving out a canyon just a little bit at a time, a little piece goes here, a little piece goes there. That time where you were in elementary school and you did something that you were so proud of and the whole class laughed at you, a little bit went away, right? Writing down those monumental times where you knew your confidence was chipped away. But then I also have them create a success file. I want you to create a file of all of your successes especially the ones when you were not sure how it would turn out. You did it anyway, and it was successful, even the little ones. And so I have them create this file and what the file eventually does, those two files side by side show that your successes far outweigh the chip aways at your confidence. And so this idea that we have that we're failures, this idea that we have that we're going to fail, this idea that we have that we're not going to be successful and we aren't the person to do it is not founded in fact, because the facts demonstrate that I have way more on this success column than I have on this failure column. This failure column just hurts a little bit more, but this success column is far greater, right? And so that's one of the biggest exercises I walk people through. And you can't imagine how many people come back to me on our next live event crying and saying, I had no idea how successful I have been over the course of my life. No idea. Little things like I'm like, go back to when you started walking. If you're able to walk, that's a success. You know how many times you had to fall over? You know how many times you bumped your head? Do you know how many times you scraped your knee? Just trying to walk. 
and you didn't stop. That didn't stop you. You had the confidence, despite having never walked in your entire life, that you were going to do, you were going to do something you had never done before. So if you had it when you were nine months old and your pattern of history has shown you for 20 plus years that you can do things you've never done before, why stop now? Mm, Wow. It's bringing me into so many things I've been thinking about with my daughter. Like I was reading about potty training and I read this one thing online that was like, how well a kid does at potty training determines how capable they feel about, you know, overcut. Like it's critical that they feel successful at potty training because, and I was like, this is a bunch of BS. They don't <laughs> give a rest behind. They, I promise you they don't. My son is one of the most confident people in the world. He's 14 and <laughs> It took me, I was like, am I a failure? That was one of my failures in life. I was like, I can't do this. Why am I failing at potty training? I did everything like, let him run around with no pants on. I was like, there is poop and pee all over my house. This is not acceptable. I am failing here. And he is probably one of the most confident people you ever want to meet. And my guess is that more of that had to do with how you supported his learning through that process than anything that has to do with the potty training. And I think that's what's so important for fundraisers to recognize is that you are going to have what feel like failures fundraising, those no's, all those things, right? That we say are so important, so critical. What matters is not the no. It's how do you talk to yourself after that no? What do you say? What's the story? And that I feel like is what when I think about it from a fundraising perspective, creates those, how did you explain it? The crevices, right? It's like the no is not going to create the crevice. The story you tell yourself about the no is going to create it. And that's the truth. People often say you are the sum total of the things that happened to you. And I'm like, you're not. You are the sum total of what you've made those things mean. Even as an entrepreneur, I can't tell you how many major proposals I have sent that got rejected. And because I am a confident person, I was like, "Mm, they just missed out on the best thing for their company. They're going to lose $5 million because they did not go with this proposal. Let me go help somebody else make 5 million. And that's how I see it. Right. But the sum total was you missed out, not I failed. Yes. And then it's back to that alignment piece. It's like, okay, right. Exactly. Let me go find the person that this is going to be the right thing for, because it doesn't mean anything about how good I am or how good my organization is or whether we're doing the right thing or not, but that it just wasn't aligned. And then as a fundraiser, when you find that person, like when the person at Casa found me, they were like, I believe he went back and was like, we got a gold mine, y'all. We got one. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, oh, well, let's talk about long-term giving. Let's talk about this. It's like, oh, and they realized, okay, once I find my person. So before me, I'm sure 50 million people had said no. But when he got to me, it was like, okay, she's passionate about this. She gave this gift. Let's see what we can get on a continual basis. Let's not have to hit her up. Let's Let's get in some automatic stuff, right? And so once you find that person, they're a gold mine, not in a bad way because you're not trying to take advantage of anyone. You're trying to actually help a cause, right? So when you find them, they're on the hook, but it's about finding your tribe. Totally, totally. Okay, I want to ask a little bit of a question that I haven't fully thought through, but I, I'm thinking about the way that women support 
or disempower each other in different ways. I know, sorry, I'm going there. But I think one of the things I've been thinking about so much in this sector that is 75% women is the harm that women cause each other and the way that leaders who are not confident weaponize their employees' confidence against them in ways that create those crevices. And I don't know, I'm just curious, like what you think about that, how you've seen that in other cultures, what do we do about that? You know what I see, and I talk about this all the time, so I'm glad you asked this question. One of your previous guests, Sherry Riley, who is a very, very good friend of mine, you all know Sherry. Sherry's been all through, everyone knows Sherry. So Sherry's been very involved in industry. Sherry gets VIP everything, okay? So I get some of this stuff vicariously to Sherry. So Sherry and I were at this major event. Sherry goes in and no one knows me. Everybody knows Sherry. There's a place set for Sherry. And it's a VIP event. She's at this table. They have a name card with her in it. She goes, sits at her chair. And I'm with her though, but I don't have a seat at this table. So Sherry goes in, she takes her seat. And after a while, I see her scooting people over. And she's like, can you scoot down just a little bit? Can you scoot down the inch? And, and people are shifting. Everybody's like, why are we shifting? Did we have a seat? And next thing I know, Sherry turns around and she grabs a chair pulls up a chair next to her and says, Deetra, come have a seat. And as women, we often don't do that. What we've often been told, and it's not our fault, we've often been told it's a one-sum game. And there's this tokenism that happens for women, it happens for minorities, it happens so much so often that we're like, you can have one woman, you can have one Black person, you can have one LGBTQIA+, you can have one older person, and you know what, we're doing really good if we get them all in one. If we can get a Black, gay, uh, disabled woman over 45, we have hit the jackpot. And that person gets there and they know there's only one seat. And so we sit in that seat and don't realize we were never meant to sit in that seat. We were meant to get in that seat and make space for others. And so just like Sherry, I tell women, get in there, get in your seat, Take up your full amount of space and start telling people, baby, you got to scoot over because I'm going to pull up a chair for someone else. Right. And that's we have to change the mindset and not even change. We have to create a mindset that we weren't given and weren't intended to have. We were never intended to have this idea that I can get in here and not just take up space, but make space. And so we have to begin to create a mindset that was never given to us. We have to begin to be creators. Yes. And, you know, I think so much of that is built from scarcity mindset. People have to lose in order for others to win. And I just don't believe that. Like, I just don't believe it. And I think that has been also something that is really hard for me to see in the nonprofit sector that is supposedly here to be healing and supporting community and fixing the problems of the world. But if we still have that mindset inside this sector, then we're also causing tremendous harm. Because people don't have the concept that there can be multiple winners, right? There can be one winner, everyone else must lose. Or even using the pie analogy, there's only so much of the pie. And I'm like, you're right. 
there is only so much of the pie, but who's sitting around eating the whole pie? Like I could have a slice, you could have a slice and we're all going to be full. Like it's okay if you don't take up the whole pie and just waste the rest of it. We can share this pie. There, there actually is enough to go around. There's enough for everyone. Yeah. My certification through executive coaching was with this organization called IPEC. And the training is around something called energy leadership. And so there are these seven levels of energy leadership that really move from level one is like victimhood, martyrdom. Level two is conflict. Three is rationalization or tolerating. Four is helper. Five is win-win. And then it's like joy and connection and enlightenment. And it's been really fascinating as I've done these assessments on now hundreds of nonprofit leaders. So many of them, their primary level of leadership is for the helper, which makes sense. You're like, okay, that makes sense. And then their primary level when triggered into stress is one. So victimhood and martyrdom, which also makes a lot of sense. And then there's this uh, strong level three, typically rationalization. So they go in this loop, helper, 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 unconscious helping. That's why I love the way you talk about consciousness, right? Unconscious helping. I better help or else. I better be in service or else. Then something happens. I feel disrespected. I'm rejected. We move down into one. I have no choice, no options, paralysis, perfectionism, victimhood. That's all the level one. And then we're like, well, they don't understand how hard I'm working. Like they could never understand what it's like. Okay, back to helper, right? And there's this cycle. And I feel like there's this huge missing level five in this sector, which is we can both win. Everyone can win. There is more than enough. And so I hope for folks who are listening, and I love what you said about pulling up a seat at the table, because I think for leaders in the nonprofit sector that identify as women, being aware of the way, and this is something in a recent interview that I sort of admitted not being good at in my early years. Like I was promoted into a leadership role at 23. I had no idea. I was running a program at 23 years old, managing people much older than me without adequate training. And so when I found myself in an executive director role at 25 or 26, I was not doing a good job pulling up seats at the table because I had that belief too. I'm like, I made it and I have no idea how I got here and tons of imposter syndrome. And like, it's a total accident that I'm here. If I pull up too many seats, then they're going to actually remember and realize that I'm here. And there was just so much I didn't understand and that I didn't know and that I was stuck in that loop. I just described, I mean, so much of the work I do now is rooted in my own personal experience. And if I could change anything about my early leadership, it would be exactly what you said. Take up space, pull up a seat. This is not a zero sum game. And there's so much more we can accomplish together. I remember growing up and there was always this, I was always the odd person out. I was always the smart black girl. I was always this person that would have my friends say, oh, I don't see you as black. And I'm like, well, what do you see me as? Because that's kind of what I am. And so I always remember there are people like me that don't get the opportunities that I have. And so I would remind them when I could, hey, you didn't give this person. I like one of the smartest people I knew was my uncle, Uncle Leon. He was a Vietnam vet, never finished school, but he read the paper 
every day. He watched the news all day longer. He knew more about world events than anyone I knew. And when I say world history, I've taught in academia. I've been the head of HR for some research one institutions. I know PhDs in history and none of them compare to my uncle Leon. And so I would always remind people, hey, you know, there are people that are like me that don't have the opportunities I have that deserve a space. And so when I got those opportunities and became the head of HR, hey, what are we doing for formerly incarcerated people? How are we looking at background checks? Why do we need to have a quote unquote clean background check for someone to clean our bathrooms? Really? Why? Why? Or you mean to tell me we're in Atlanta, Georgia, which has one of the highest populations of educated African-Americans in the country, and you couldn't find not one Black person for that, that leadership position in the pool? Not one? Because I always remember when it was me, when I was the one and I had to find a way to navigate just to prove. And I'm like, wait a minute, even going to college, I remember going to college on an academic scholarship and having a white girl in my class dress me down and, and point out to the entire class, the only reason you're here is because of affirmative action. Really? And I, I stopped and I asked the professor, may I have a moment, please? And she said, sure. So I stopped the class and I said, everyone, if you are comfortable, yell out your SAT scores. They yell out SAT scores. I looked at her and said, you haven't yelled out yours, would you mind? She had the lowest SAT score in the class. I had the highest SAT score. Now let's go and put up our high school GPAs, put up everybody's high school GPA again. She wasn't the lowest, but she was the second from the bottom. Again, I was the highest. Now let's talk about your high school activities. Now let's talk about your current GPA and your current activities. So in the grand scheme of things, how did you get here? Because it looks like I'm one of the most qualified people to be here. And turns out her dad was a donor. So was her granddad and her great granddad who had a building named after him. So I said, really? Looks like you're the affirmative action admission person as opposed to me. But I've always had those experiences. So it always reminded me, you have to get in here and take up space because there are people that won't be the smartest person in their class, that won't have the highest SAT score, that won't have the highest GPA, but they have her GPA. And if she deserves to be here, so do they. And so you have to create space because everyone doesn't need to have your qualifications to have an opportunity, right? And so I was always reminded at every turn, you were created, God gave you this intelligence and this gift, not for you to take full advantage of it, but for you to get in a space and create space for others who weren't given this gift, but are just as qualified as those people who don't have the same gift that you have. I love I love that you shared that story. There are two things. One is my guess is that girl in the room was dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome and weaponized it against you. And so I think this is one of the reasons why women in particular becoming more confident themselves and dealing with their own imposter syndrome is so important for themselves, but it's also so important for the collective and the way we support each other as women, because our demons really impact the way that we support the people around us. And the other thing I love that's personal for me is my grandma was born in Hungary and my family's Jewish and Jews weren't allowed to go to school after 13. And then she was in the concentration camps and then long story ended up coming to the U.S. was the most business savvy woman I had ever met. I mean, the resourcefulness that that woman learned, it's amazing. And I always admired her so much. And I remember though, sometimes like her English wasn't that great and she had never gone to school past 
the age of 13 and Hungarian doesn't have pronouns. So she would always mix them up and people would get confused about who she was talking about and projected onto her this sort of like uneducated persona, right? Like that they couldn't talk to her about complicated things. And this woman, she worked in a sewing factory and I'm like, yeah, we are so narrow in the way that we look at qualities and qualifications and what even deserves to make you feel confident or what sort of things you need. So I just, I really appreciate you sharing that about your uncle and I yeah, relate to it so much. Okay. I could talk to you forever, but let's have you share how people can find you and a little bit more information. I'll include a link to around the confidence course. Cause I can imagine that folks might be interested in taking that, which sounds just so aligned. And then I also invite everyone to share a nonprofit that they are particularly passionate about to have folks go check out and give if they can. So I'll let you wrap us with those. Absolutely. So the best way to get in touch with me is LinkedIn. I am a professional networker. I call the people that network with me employeepreneurs because I believe you are the CEO of your career. So every person has a business. You are the CEO of your career. And I am the cubicle to the corner office queen. And so that's my goal. Getting everyone from the cubicle to the corner office. And I'm Dietra Giles there. That's D-E-T-H-R-A-G-I-L-E-S. But I encourage you to go out and support a nonprofit that speaks to your heart, whatever your heart is. My heart is adjudicated youth. So CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, is one of my favorites. I'm also a huge supporter of the United Negro College Fund and your university. They're always trying to get money out of you please help them out so that other people can go back and get educated. But whatever you do, find a fund or a nonprofit to support one that fits with the impact that you want to have in life. And of course, the confidence program. There is not a person in the world that does not need to have more confidence. You might have a little bit of it, probably been snatched away. And that confidence is in the way of you getting from where you are to where you want to be. And so we'd love to have you in our 10-week confidence program. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Wow. I knew this conversation was going to be good, but I had no idea it was going to be this good. I am so pumped up after talking to Dietra and just am ready to take on the world. I want to highlight a few of the takeaways from this conversation that I just can't stop thinking about. The first is how to embrace ignorance. We usually give a negative note to this word, but the truth is that nobody's born knowing everything. Recognizing our ignorance gives us the space to accept, ask, learn, and imagine. The second takeaway is you have to know who are your partners and who aren't. I know we talk about this a lot, but not everyone is designed to be your partner. The sooner you recognize that, the faster both parties can move on. Your time is worth it and your confidence is too. The more we act from a place of alignment, the more we're able to build confidence because things feel so good instead of that slimy car salesperson energy that I know I was bringing to fundraising when I first started. The third takeaway might sound like a contradiction, but it's actually not. No is where negotiation can begin. So building trust is sometimes a long process. Every powerful opportunity requires some risk. So if you're rejected, what matters is not the no. It's how you talk to yourself after that no. What do you say to yourself? 
And then is there a way to move forward with that partner in a different way? Maybe that particular ask was a no, but is there another opportunity here? And the last thing I want to make sure you heard is don't be afraid to aim high. Most funders will feel honored if you ask for more than they can give, and you will never know what's possible if you don't ask. Okay, I could go on and on, but for all the other takeaways from this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to get access to everything right now. You'll also find more information there about Dietra's incredible work and how to connect with her and check out her amazing program on confidence. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.